Kia ora koutou. hello everybody and welcome back to Epic Aotearoa Creates a Better Future podcast with your host Joe Hortai and I'm grateful and privileged to have an incredible man with me this evening, well it's evening for us, 8 o'clock here in NZ, 1800 I think for Dan in uh, Brizzy <clears throat> at the moment and Mr Daniel Cooper, former Australian Special Air Service operator and team leader and um, mate it's been a long time, really really good to see you bro, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. It has been a long time. Um, yeah. And it's good to catch up. So thanks for reaching out, mate, and uh, organising this. Um, looking forward to actually having a bit of a chat and hopefully the first of a few sort of offline as well. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you first for making time uh, to be with us. I know it's it's evening there for you and you've got your wife and kids and stuff there. So appreciate them uh, letting you come away to spend some time with me for the next sort of hour, hour and a half. But for our audience in that here, uh, this is probably going to be at least a two-part um, session with Dan. There's a lot of ground to cover. And uh, what I'd like to do, Dan, if it's all right with you, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of a rundown, a background of of yourself, uh, what you've done or how long you spent uh, in the Defence Force in total and in particular with, it, with the regiment, and also what you do now. And then that will sort of paint a bit of a frame and give us a bit of context for how we'll delve into the rest of this uh, conversation and interview, bro. Yep. Yeah. So <coughs> I joined the army late. I think it was around '97, so late sort of '90s, um, off the back of an apprenticeship. So I was still pretty young at that stage. I think I actually had my 21st birthday at the training establishment yeah, right. at Kapuka. Um, did it was around three and a half years in the airborne battalion once I left. Um, just seemed like an exciting place to go. So I thought I'd give that a crack. Um, end of the day, it's just another infantry battalion that has that parachute capability. But I was always really keen on testing myself at, at the highest level sort of thing. So I joined to give selection a go, passed that thankfully first time. And then I spent the next, I think 18 years or around 18 years in the SAS sort of thing. So um, as you know, that kind of got pretty busy there yeah. early 2000s and no one saw that coming. Um, but it was just sort of, it happened so fast and it spans or spun so quickly, just kind of before you know it, 18 years is gone you know you're starting to have kids so I did that during that period i uh, started studying sports science because i had a real interest in human performance and i was looking at how to better prepare guys how to reduce injuries how to increase longevity a little bit around myself as well but sort of looking to bring that information in and that led into a master's in strength and conditioning and then a master's of research in integrated cognitive and physiological training um, on the back of that and kind of creating a network and just getting out and talk to people i've got offered a position or sort of acquired or inquired and got offered a position with the Queensland Reds. So I went and did two years in professional sport. Uh, and then sort of just through some family transitions, I stepped back from working full time to look after the kids and picked up a PhD scholarship. So I'm now sort of two thirds of the way through a PhD looking essentially at how to prepare people sort of for performance in really high pressure, sort of high um, consequence environment. So looking at it a lot around sort of threat response, behaviours under threat, these sort of things, trying to understand them and how to prepare people so that you get the best performance out of them in these environments. Uh, and then in around that, there's a whole heap of adventure racing, a whole heap of fitness stuff, and then just trying to work out how to be a good dad, which is probably <laughs> the toughest bit of it all. <laughs> Man, awesome, mate. Incredible. So good to hear. And and we're going to delve into some of those things. Some of them might sort of cross over as we as we hear more from you, but uh, just for the audience, and and I gave you a bit of a heads up. That's part of the reason why, ladies and gentlemen, why this I just you know 
to give your experiences and the value that I know that you're going to add to not only myself, but the listeners that will take the time. Uh, we can't and just wouldn't be able to cover all of that in one session. So I'm grateful to have this time with you and then definitely want to follow it up with, with another session. And in this one, um, I've touched on with you, I'd really be keen to delve into your time in particular within the unit because I, what I've been finding or what we've been finding, my co-host, Brian Osman, who can't make it tonight, we've been getting a lot of feedback from people that have really enjoyed people like yourself that have come out and shared some of their experiences and the yep. mindset around some of that. And uh, it's been really helpful for those that haven't even served in the unit, civilians and those that have just served in regular Green Army type stuff themselves that have struggled with transition and or that are in the military still today. So to have this time and to get as much value out of it, I just wanted to, to pitch and focus sort of around that stuff first. But as we go, obviously, um, responses and stuff from you might delve into other things that you're currently doing at the moment. But ladies and gentlemen, you can understand from listening to that, that there's there's a reason behind why we just want to sort of want to break this up into at least a couple of parts with yourself then. So again, bro, so good to see you. I think last time I remember seeing you, I was probably tapping out, getting tapped by you when Taff was running some of the BJJ stuff at, at Smallbone <laughs> Barracks in the gym there. <laughs> so, anyway, it was a long time ago. It is a long time. But man, it's good. And and obviously having the privilege to play some rugby with you while we're still serving in the unit at the time with associates. So um, there's definitely good times and good memories. So yeah, you still look the same, bro. So really good to see you. <laughs> Mate, I want to uh, jump into sort of the, the first question that I've got. And you sort of painted a bit of a nice picture, like very, very, in my opinion, high achieving with regards to what you've been able to do. And it's it's normal for, I think anyway, for people like yourself to be very humble about their achievements and just sort of glazing over, you know, you sort of gloss over masters and working a two thirds of a PhD and having this position to work at the Queensland Reds, you're speaking just sort of glazing over that. But in my head, I'm thinking, hang on, hang on, there's, there's stories there just in and of itself. But mate, I guess it could be easy for people to think that, oh, he must have had a good life or he's just, you know, he's just had it easy. Those sorts of perceptions may be there. But I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just sort of talking us through briefly before I talk about some of the adventure racing stuff and the CrossFit stuff as well, about yep. what some of that upbringing for you was like, um, you know, any significant things that stand out to you, any challenges maybe, any sibling rivalry and that sort of stuff, um, and including things like, you know, values and really good lessons that you learned from your family and friends and, and your upbringing in general. Would you mind taking us through that? Yeah, no, not a problem at all. Um, I kind of look back a little bit of it because a lot of what I do around exploring how people became really good with performance is looking at where they come from, you mm. know what I mean? And everything points back to your early environment. You know what I mean? Like there's a bit of genetics in there, but it seems a lot of it is around the environment and, and the interaction between your genetics and that environment. Um, so my upbringing was kind of very sort of blue collar. So my old man was a bricklayer. Mum was a stay-at-home mum or... Um, just kind of looked after us full time and it, I think the first maybe six to seven years I would say maybe even a little bit longer the old man used to go away for work during the week sort of thing so he'd go away up into areas probably two three hours away from where we were living and bricklay Monday to Friday or at least Sunday night bricklay Monday to Friday then he'd come back Friday night sort of thing so we'd see him leave Sunday he'd get back Friday night after we we're in bed so we'd send we'd spend Saturday with him and Sunday so when I was growing up, he was away a lot. Um, and to be honest, I don't know whether that was good or bad or indifferent, really, sort of thing. That was just, you know, I think you just get used to what is normal for you. I didn't really look too deep into it. Um, 
sort of thing. But he was like when he was there on the weekends, he'd take a sport, do all sort of these other things. So um, within that, it was sort of fairly normal. And then as I got a little bit older, we kind of moved more into like the foothills of the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney. And then there we had a little bit more land. We had uh, where we lived kind of back onto national parks. So I was able to, or I had a bit of freedom to just go and explore the bush. Uh, as long as I was back by dinner, everything was all right. So I had that environment which where I was allowed or given sort of enough flexibility to go and explore, get myself into a little bit of trouble, get myself out of it. Um, but knowing that if I got into any real trouble, my parents were there to help me sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's probably, you know, fairly common when you go back, you know, 20, 30 years and even further, that's how kids were. They just went out and did their own stuff sort of thing. So yeah. uh, my actual upbringing was fairly normal sort of thing. Like I went to um, small schools, so they were um, sort of very, fairly small and you got to know everyone. So back then you'd play uh, contact sport for uh, little lunch, for lunch, these sort of things. So, you know, you might have 30 kids in school that are playing a game of Red Rover or rugby. So you'd be in year two or three having to take on your kids in year five or six. So sort of things. I'd get, when I look back at it, there's a lot of really good exposure in that sort of aspect. The high school I went to was a little bit bigger standard problems for a high school sort of thing that was fairly standard um, now, now were you a good student coops were, were you like academically were you getting good grades <laughs> consistently in high school that did fluctuate eh? and yeah. i think it did with a lot of kids so and it was very much on the teacher so the classes where i engaged with the teacher i did all right and then there was yeah. the classes where I, I just didn't like we clashed um, and i actually got kicked out of some of those classes, but not the school. I just had to sit on the outside and there was a group of us just self-learning. Um, and in the end, we actually did better on the outside because we were just learning from the textbook. Yeah, right. Um, so I did, but about year 11, I kind of disengaged. And after that, all my grades went down. I just wasn't interested in school. And I think I was just staying there because I didn't want to go get a job at that age or that stage sort of thing. So I did year 11, year 12. Um, bare, I got, I think it was around 21% on the old HSC. Um, so I didn't qualify to go to university, nothing like that. And we had a family of tradesmen sort of thing, like everyone, all my uncles, my old man, they were all bricklayers. My brother went off, became a plumber. So it was just a blue collar family. So I figured yeah, right. I'd go get a trade. So I went and did uh, cabinet making or shop, fit shop fitting and detailed joiner, which I kind of had an interest in at the time. But then after a while, that kind of became fairly monotonous. And I was just really curious and interested in going doing something that kind of tested me a lot more. Um, and just provided a little bit sort of more stimulation in my environment, sort of then gave me something to sort of get out of bed for, I suppose. So I kind of did my apprenticeship and then from there went and joined the Army because it was something I was interested in. Uh, and my brother had joined about three or four years before me, so I sort of knew a little bit around about that. So he kind of got my interest and then I went and went down that pathway. What? So your brother, this is an older brother. Yes, yeah, so he's four years older than me. So like when you look at backyard sport, like I never won anything growing up. You know, like a game of cricket, I'd go in and bat for five minutes and sort of get my ten wickets, and then he'd be in all afternoon. Sort of thing. So I used to get towed up a lot playing sport. Yeah, but it was, when you're a kid, that's just how it is. You know, what I mean, like you're not yeah. too concerned about it. Yeah, and so did your brother, I didn't know that, so did your brother, what did he join? Did he join the infantry as well or trade? Yeah, or? so he joined the infantry um, and then he ended up, it was in 4-hour which became 2-commando oh, right. sort of thing. So he was there when I think it first separated from 2-4 and stayed on, did the commando and he was one of the early commandos in there. Wow. Um, but he sort of, 
I think, I can't remember what year it was, but he did probably, I don't know, six years, eight years, uh, and then kind of went off to do something else. Yeah, awesome, man. All right, what a, what a, thank you for painting that picture of the upbringing and that sort of stuff, and particularly the parts, the early childhood and being out, you know, out till dark and then just enough time to get into trouble, but also the ability to get yourself out of it and knowing that mum and dad were there, mum and dad, and just that background around there. It sounds like a very hard-working family, particularly from both your mum and your dad, but did your dad ever take you out brick lane with him at any um, time? Yeah, he did. There's a, there's a reason <laughs> Some free labour? Yeah, when I went and became, oh, it was for pocket money. So oh, he did, yeah, Like, if I wanted something, he goes, all right, well, let's go and... Yeah. I'll pay you to come labouring. Uh, and there's a reason why I didn't become a bricklayer's labourer as an apprentice. Um, that was sort of, that's tough work. Like, my hat's yeah. off to those guys, especially during the winter. Um, but he also go and do that with him. And then he went into another job, which I sort of went in and worked a little bit around weekends um, sort of thing. But, you know, when you spoke about values earlier, yeah. in our house we had really strong value systems sort of thing. So um, I remember early on there was sort of a bit of discipline around understanding those values. And then as we got older it was sort of, a lot more discussion around it sort of thing but we we're really big on you know sort of having good values and just being good people yeah awesome beautiful man i'm just making notes of some of the stuff that you mentioned as well so appreciate that man that that's um that's really cool i love how you've sort of painted that picture and getting towed up by your, your big brother how many siblings <laughs> did you have obviously your big brother were there any other siblings uh yeah i had a younger sister younger sister sort of thing so um yeah, just the three of us. Yep, three of us. Okay. Which I think back then was probably a pretty standard family. Yeah, and uh, so your, your, I'm, I'm assuming both you and your big brother are fairly protective of your baby sister. Um, a little bit, not overly sort of thing. So, yeah. look, she grew up with two brothers. Um, you know, we both went and joined the army, so it's not as though, you know, we didn't give her a hard time growing up, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, like if she wanted to get involved in sport, she had to sort of keep up a little bit. So I guess yeah. she sort of grew up competing against us so she knew how to sort of handle herself handle sort of thing. so yeah awesome. and what sports were you so obviously i know about the rugby having the privilege to play with you whilst whilst we we're in the unit but what were you playing whilst you were growing up was it rugby as well through school and high school and that sort of stuff yeah so i was playing soccer a lot when i was really little um right. i think i was more guided into that than chose that um yeah. so i played that for a while and then i took a break where i wasn't playing any formal sport so it was mostly just school sport mostly just exploring stuff, um, playing on my own of an afternoon, that sort of thing. And then I think it was early teenage years, I got into rugby league, which I was always right. really interested in. Uh, I just had to convince mum to let me go and play uh, <laughs> contact sport. And I can still remember that phone call between her and the old man the right? first for the first training session, trying to convince her. Um, Tell us about it. Uh, so <laughs> the training was on and Jesus was sort of said, you know, unless he says yes, it's not going to happen. And then thankfully he rang. So I was trying to manipulate that conversation between them to convince him. And he was happy for me to go do it. She just sort of wanted to make sure that everything would be fine. Yeah. Um, she had reason to be sceptical of it because I broke my ankle that year, I think about right. six or seven games in. So like, ultimately she was right. Uh, but then I came back from that and played uh, probably another six or seven years until I joined the army sort of thing. But I guess like all young kids, my ambition was to play professional rugby league. Yeah. Uh, just the area I grew up in, there was just so many talented young kids that I just never got a look in. And when I look back, I think a lot of it probably wasn't so much around talent. It was just at that stage, I didn't understand what work ethic was. So I think so like I sort of, I don't know, to me it's, a, it's intriguing that 
the person I was then wouldn't have done what I've done now sort of thing. So I think, mm. you know, from those sort of mid to late teenage years, I've learnt a lot. Like even the person that turned up to the selection wasn't the person that was playing rugby league. Yeah, right. That's awesome. That's so good to hear because I want to delve into that as, as we go on this conversation and our catch up here um, and hearing your experiences. So those are some really good points that you've just touched on here. And I've heard you speak about your curiosity and stuff. And I actually heard some of that as you were speaking in another podcast about your curiosity. And it's interesting when you mentioned um, Airborne Battalion, 3RAR, that you chose that intentionally, which I guess in my head sort of ties in with some of the stuff that you do now, this human performance under pressure and all those sorts of things, because you didn't like heights. Was that right? Did I hear that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, yeah, and I specifically chose it for one of those reasons, because I just wanted to take that fear on. Um, But like even taking on your fear still has a context, you know what I mean? So like there's still areas where like if I have to have a really difficult discussion with my partner, like I'd rather jump out of a plane. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I hear you. Like this is the thing like when, and like we'll get into it later, I'm assuming, but a lot of the research shows, uh, a lot of the stuff I'm looking at is that it has context, you know what I mean? So like taking on a fear of heights is a completely different context and almost a different process than you know, something else that makes you uncomfortable. But as far as taking on sort of physical pain and those sort of things, I've never been too concerned about that. You know, I mean, I've always been comfortable with that where, you know, sort of probably more emotional things is probably a bit more of a challenge and I've had to sort of build those skills over the years. But mm. yeah, the, the airborne thing was a lot around getting over that fear of heights and just the curiosity. Like the idea of jumping out of a plane really excited me and I didn't want a fear of heights or anything like that to get in the way. Awesome. And so I sort of no, sorry, went go. Off and did it. Yeah. And so, sorry, um, Dan, I missed. Whereabouts did you grow up? What was the name of the area, the town, or the? Uh, so it was the Lower Blue Mountains outside of Sydney, Lower sort of Blue thing. Mountains. So it was kind of for anyone that's familiar with that region, it's kind of around Currajong, sort yeah. of. Thing. So like the, where I played rugby league was in the Penrith catchment system. So you know the the Panthers got a really really strong junior program out there, and it's always been strong. Man, awesome. Thanks for sharing that and talk, touching on that as well. And yeah, we're definitely going to come back to some of those points that you just spoke about then. And I guess this this might be the start of that segue into it. And I'd love it if you would, wouldn't mind speaking, Coops, about your journey into the SAS. So you're in battalion, you're in 3RER, Airborne Battalion, with that capability. And uh, it's only, what, two years, three years there before you decide that you're going to do selection? Yeah, so I turned up with the intention... It was just trying to work out because you get told and like you sort of battalions are funny places as to who you listen to and what guidance you take. Yeah. Um, but you know, people go, Oh, you need to be to be here for four years, five yeah. years and some go, I oh, just spend a year here and go for it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um sort of thing. So I kinda it was probably around two and a half years and the selection process came or the application process came up, so I put my application in and gotcha. then I went and did the barrier test which was one of the evolutions where it was a three-day barrier. Yep. Where you sort of go do your testing, you do physical stuff, and then you do like a, a Navex, I think, and then a day similar to uh, Lucky Dip. So I went and did that. And then Timor started, or deployed into Timor. So I went to Timor in 99 into 2000, which was that selection period. So I actually um, requested not to do selection. Yep. And then I went back and did the barrier test the next year uh, and did the selection in 2001. And that was so you could deploy, right? Yeah, I was deployed at the time. Yeah. Just, 
Gotcha. Because nothing had happened in so long, I figured that selection will always be there. Yeah. I mean, like, I was young enough, a year doesn't matter. Yep. So I thought, I'll stay on the deployment. Um, I expect, there's probably that, you know, fear that if you go now, you'll never get that, that chance again and you might yep. miss out on something. Um, it wasn't a great deployment. I wouldn't have missed anything. But I sort of stayed there and then came back yep. and did selection the following year. Awesome. And so you're... And, and what that application and your process when you've gone through to to go to SASR was it straight to and oh sorry just one step before that am I right the barrier testing because that was something I didn't know about when I got there obviously there was barrier testing and stuff that was happening but were they using that as the because it was quite expensive from what I understood to send people over to Perth and then do the cull when 40-50% withdraw or whatever and then they get sent back so is that part of why the barrier testing was happening? Yeah, it was, this was a, an early evolution to it. So I think the year before, the one I was going to do when I was in Timor was actually on the East Coast. Right. And that was, a, I think that was the only combined one they did at the time. Um, and it was, from what I can gather, it was a little bit clunky. The, it still got the people that it would always get through. The process was very similar. It was just a, a few hiccups with it. Right. Um, but I think the idea of the barrier was traditionally, I think they used to put everyone on a military plane, fly them across the Perth, They'd do the 3.2, and the people that didn't pass would get back on the plane and fly back home. And there'd be easily a few hundred, right? On, oh, on the th- yeah, like they'd get 200 people turn up, I think, yeah. um, and then they wouldn't do it. So then they thought, okay, well, let's cull it down a little bit. So when I did my selection after the barrier, there was actually only 31 people turned up for selection. Right, yeah. And then that dwindled <laughs> to six people. Um, so the last week with six people, there was nowhere to hide. Like, <laughs> they had, there was tried, more DS than there was candidates, so they got a really good look. Um, but that, only having six really complicated the reinforcement cycle. Yeah. Um, so then they sort of went back to a system where they do now, where they travel around, do that testing, and then they might get anywhere from 80 to 120 people, I think they'll sort of take yeah. from year to year. Like it fluctuates a little bit, but the end result doesn't really seem to change a great deal. Awesome. Man. Um, and so where did your drive, how did, because you, you'd done the carpentry, you were curious, and I think, did you mention was that the intent was always to give the SAS a crack or what, why yeah, was that, so where did that stem from? That was well before I joined the army. So yeah. like I watched a lot of, like I grew up with almost Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, you know, surrogate dads on TV <laughs> type of thing. So like I was watching a lot of that and, you know, the Schwarzenegger movies, the yep. Stallone movies, and then you started to see the Navy SEAL movies come through not long after that. And that really intrigued me because... Right that was probably more relative to what I was doing than sort of old westerns and stuff or what's going on now Uh, and then I've seen the stuff about the British SAS and their sort of hostage rescue stuff Mm -hmm. and I got really intrigued in it and then I found out that Australia had a version of that Um, I guess it was just a real fascination with you know who are these people where do they come from you know and at that time it was almost I couldn't relate to those people yeah you know, I mean, like you wonder, you know, where do they grow up? Do these people just come from normal society? Like you think of them almost as that gap between normal humans and superhumans. <laughs> you know, these guys sit in there. And then I sort of, I don't know, like I've kind of come up with an idea or a decision and then I just slowly move towards it, just sort of biting piece after piece. And then you sort of join the army and that you start to see a pathway to it. Then you put in your application for selection because you think, you know, well, I've got nothing to lose here. I can give it a go. And then you start to slowly close in on it. And then at some point you realise, you know what, this isn't actually as unachievable as I thought. And then when I got onto selection, it was sort of, all right, well, 
the one thing I've, I can choose here is to not leave. So I'm not going to leave. If they cart me off because I'm no good, I can live with that. If I get injured and get carried off, I can live with that. But I'm not going to be able to live with pulling or withdrawing on my own um, account. So that was the one thing that I had control of. And I kind of just took it hour by hour, day by day. And then, you know, before you know or not before you know it, but eventually you get to the end because it seems like a really long time at the time. Yeah. And then, you know, as you know, you did that interview and then congratulate you and you're in and then you sort of realize you know what these are just normal people in here um but it sort of it really grew from that early fascination as to you know what would it be like to be in there would i be able to get in there like do i have what it takes to pass through that and do i have what it takes to actually perform in that environment so you know it's just sort of really driven by basically curiosity and fascination around it man that's awesome it's really cool to hear too because i've had um Nick on and Ryan Wilson and Gads that they've been on and spoken a bit as well and it's really cool to hear the different mindsets and stuff leading up to um, I think Nick is one that Nick Caldwell stands out to me in my mind because yeah. he was really drawn by uh, uh, the commando Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff and um, <laughs> and that's what drew him to the special forces so and he wouldn't be alone I know there's a couple of others that I've chatted with as well but um, hearing your your side and your and that piece there like these people come from another planet or something did they land here from you know a spaceship yeah, like and then just <laughs> yeah you sort of look at it and go you know what like i'm not that like yeah. you know and you're curious as to you know how did they grow up where did yeah. they come from and then you know you get there and you realize that you know what they're just normal folk yeah you know i mean they're just a little bit more motivated willing to put up with a little bit more and do a bit more and here they all are yeah awesome man i love that um that explanation and your perceptions of what you what you identified and then your growth into that and move into that which is probably a nice move right now because we'll we'll delve more into your top actually i want to ask you first how many do you remember how many started on your like the selection proper not the barrier testing so um on day one you've got x amount of people how many started how many of you finished if you remember and then how many of you did they accept? Because there's usually always a cull as well at the end, even yep. though you complete. Do you remember those num yes. rough numbers? So they had a massive cull before we got to Perth. So I think it was 31 that yep. turned up in Perth. Um, right. So I think it was 80 on that three-day barrier. And then from there, they cut it to about 31. Gotcha. Um, so as usual, like a decent percentage went in the first week. And then there wasn't too many. And then we got to the last phase. And I think from memory, there might have been eight one withdrew on the first day of that and we didn't want him to go basically because we just needed the extra person to yeah. lift stuff around yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was a little bit selfish on our behalf like no 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 hang around like we actually need the extra person um because we we're really struggling because i think we had enough staff planning on a bigger section than what we'd actually turned what had right. turned up on that last week um sort of thing so we got through there and then they took three officers and three diggers from that Man. um I think one of the diggers was questionable, but there was only three of us that finished. Yeah. Um, so they took him anyway, and he, he didn't get through the reinforcement cycle. He ended up sort of um, getting gotcha. booted, for well, lack of a better word, on yeah. some of the terminal courses. But we only did half a reinforcement cycle, and they ran a second selection that year. Yeah. Uh, and from that, they got, I think, maybe 16, which brought it up to sort of an usual sort of 20 to 24 that will come through on yeah. average. So. Um, and then we were able to do the, the full cycle on the back of that. Man, 
Oh, yeah, because that, that's like the numbers that you just mentioned there. I was like, that's similar to the numbers that they'd get through finishing the NZ one. Because, yeah, it'd be hard to run the... <laughs> and they still run the cycle here. So hearing that, and then, so then it sounds like they topped up then once they had another 16 or so, then you guys yeah, combined. Yeah, then... we, we did our cycle a little bit back to front sort of thing. Right. So um, we did a few of the, like the SIG course and these things early because there was only sort of three or four of us at that stage. So I think two of the officers had to return back to their old units to finish some stuff off. Right. So we sort of got four people doing courses. So they, we, they just put us in smaller courses and then they ran an insertion one with some other people that need to pick up their insertion skills so we didn't get any choice we just got put into uh, mobility uh, and then we did what we could and then on the back of that next selection they did so we did ours in the summer and then they did one sort of late winter which was probably pretty tough i reckon because it was pretty cold yeah so like i supported that and i was like oh, i think i would have preferred to do the summer one to be honest <laughs> um and then we did all those more terminal courses on the back of that gotcha and then, the guys who had been on the first half, so the two of us that had uh, completed that much of the Rio from that first selection, and then the guys who were already qualified in some of those skills went to the squadron after the sort of the 12 months I'd been there. Then the guys from that second cycle went through and did the, the next six months, whatever it was, of their reinforcement cycle. So it was sort of a little bit clunky, um, but you know they're really good at making things work in that place, so they just sort of kept rolling on and then I think the next year they changed it a little bit so that they got more numbers coming through so they didn't have the repeat of that same problem again. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it would have been been clunky to work through in there. But yeah, well, two selections is human or is hugely resource intensive. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, you think with the work cycle and training cycles that they have, their operational cycles, like, you just can't afford two of those things each year. So yeah. um, they just said, okay, this isn't working. We trialed it. Let's go back and find a better way. <laughs> And that's good um, and that'll come out too that's been one of the I guess one of the hallmarks and traits that I've noticed anyways particularly speaking with guys like Moff and that sort of thing as well and, and now yourself as well who'll be able to speak to some of that as we get to it but where did you end up going what was your insertion where you ended up can you tell us um, yeah so I initially went into mobility uh, and I left the reinforcement cycle to go straight to Afghanistan yeah. so during my cycle was when 9-11 happened um, so I can still remember the day like we're in the yeah. middle of a combat course and then we sort of that night it happened we we're all watching then the next day we turned up at work and things just weren't the same as the day before you know what i mean like people are scurrying around a few of the instructors are now missing from the course you know they're off doing other things so we sort of went through and then i finished and went away with the second rotation which was three squadron at the time so i came straight off my cycle and straight into afghanistan uh with one of the mobility platoon or mobility troops Man. and uh, this is this is good like it's fine i'm gonna i'll come back to some of these other questions later but can you take us yeah. can you talk us through because this is a question that people often want to know or ask about what was that feeling like for you obviously you remember where you were when 9-11 happened <clears throat> you come to work the next day things aren't quite the same as you mentioned those things that just took place did you start to get a feeling or have a feeling that this is where the rubber's going to meet the road now like where we're heading off like jobs yeah. going to be on soon you definitely see the opportunity there or the potential for something to happen but in because of australia it's variability in committing to these things like some things they commit to some things they don't you just never know what our role is going to be if any so you sort of there's that kind of excitement sort of um fascination around it and probably a little bit of apprehension as well you know you're thinking 
you know what if I get sent to Afghanistan these guys don't really have a history of getting rolled up easy you know what I mean like this is a simple gig um so you sort of you're kind of just waiting and you can see the wheel starting to turn and then you sort of and there's always rumors like rumors are rife everywhere and there's these little rumors kicking around and then you start to see people actually gearing up and you realize all right well we're going to commit early on but you just you never know what it looks like beyond that so everyone's kind of scrambling for that first rotation because you just don't know whether there's going to be a second and a third or how long it's going to go for so you sort of yeah just kind of could see the potential just waiting to see what came about but for where i was i still had a few courses to get through yet so my reality was still i need to pass these otherwise i'm not going anywhere i'm going back to 3rr and probably end up in timor in 12 months <laughs> and so when when did the decision come to you because you hadn't your cycle wasn't finished before you were deployed right no nah, that's right uh, so, so for the... me it had i'd finished all the courses oh, okay because uh, yeah. i'd done all the front end ones and then i did the back end ones and gotcha. i done because I came in para qualified, I didn't have to do the parachute course, which was Sweet. the course everyone went on to when I deployed, yeah. sort of thing. So yeah. I think there was me and one other. Um, so sorry, there was a two off my cycle, and then I think one from the cycle yeah, afterwards who yeah, gotcha. came from the reserve commando. So he had a number of the qualifications that they needed. So right. um, he just lacked an insertion, so he came along as well because I just was looking for a few more people and. I was like, looked at us and I'm like, okay, well, you guys have got the, the qualifications we need so far. Pretty much were fully qualified, so we went off uh, yeah, awesome. and joined three squadron. Wicked. And I think, as I remember, um, our, our, or the cycle that I was on was a little bit around about as well. We had deployed, but then we come back and then we had to do the CQB and you were one of the instructors along with Lockie and a few of the other guys, which I won't mention because I'm not sure if they're still serving but um you were one of the instructors on my cqb i remember with our groups that were coming through so it was a little bit but doesn't sound like as disjointed or uh, as your as your cycle was and i guess leading up to or coming back to one of the questions now so you're getting that call to wheels up and head off and deploy um were you married by then when did you meet because that was one of my next when did you meet did you meet your wife um before you went on selection or whilst you were in the unit? Uh, so I met whilst I was in the unit. So I'd been there gotcha. for around about two and a half to three years. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Sort of thing. So, yeah, when we met, she was visiting Perth from Sydney. So she had a friend who was in the military. Um, and then we sort of met. Then she was back and forth a little bit from work. So we kind of just were doing the, the long distance thing. Yeah. Um, and then... Her work was expanding, and there was an opportunity for her to come to Perth. So we thought, all right, well, let's see how this works out. Um, so, personally, I think it's a positive thing that I was already in there because when she came, or when she met me, she already knew what my life looked like, sort yeah. of thing. So, like, she's like, okay, well, this is what our relationship's going to be. This is what life's like. Where sometimes I question if guys come across with a family, then it throws their whole routine out. You know what I mean? So, like, they uh, some adjust really well, but I. Th- my opinion, and this is my opinion only, is that yeah. some don't. Like, it sort of throws out their cycle too much or it creates too much chaos that the adjustment's really difficult for them. And I think that can be problematic. Yeah, 100%. And that, that's cool. And I've obviously, I know your wife's name, but I'm not mentioning it because she's in a fairly, she's in a bit of a technical role these days, isn't she? Yeah, so we did a complete swap. So yeah. she got into a tactical role, and I was like, fine, I'll go look after the kids and relax for a few years. Um, <laughs> Because she'd been really good, like she was sort of, she had her own pathway, like 
as you know, she went and opened her own gym. She sort of yeah. kept herself busy and doing all this other stuff. But it was always still, if I was away, then it was more about what I was doing had a priority almost in the relationship. So she was kind of always adjusting to what I was doing. Yeah. Um, so and she was really good about that. And then her opportunity came up and I just said straight away, look, you've done everything for so long. Now I'll go and do everything and you can go and do this sort of thing. So she's gone off and... Um, she's really enjoying it and making a really good opportunity out of it. So Beautiful. That's great to hear. And I want to ask you, because I, I like to ask the guests this here as well. Is, so this is your opportunity. If I'm, if I'm lucky enough, hopefully I might have the opportunity to have your sweetheart on this podcast to, to hear her side. But how did you guys meet and who asked who? Uh, so we met, so it was actually at the Gratwick Club, which is the yep. bar on base for those that don't know. Yeah. Um, so it was a farewell for one of the guys who went away into the private sector and then came back years later. Um, so we're up there having a few drinks and the friend she had kind of knew these guys so she, they come up for a bit and then they went off. Uh, and then we met them out hours later and we sort of, we just kind of bumped into each other at the bar and just sort of started chatting. Um, and then I think she gave me a phone number just on the back of the conversation that we had and then... Did you ask up, for it? Uh, I can't fully remember. I think I alluded to it, <laughs> yeah. and then she gave it to me, sort of thing. Um, but it was on a uh, AFL Grand Final weekend, wow. so sort of in, everyone in Perth out all weekend. Uh, so then we ended up the next night, kind of meeting up again, and then it, that was more by chance. But then yeah. I organised the following night, sort of thing. So for three nights in a row, we met up, and then she went back home, and then uh, not long after, I was heading back to Sydney because my family was still on the East Coast uh, and I'd organised to sort of see her for a little bit in Sydney on the way down to my family and on the way back and then it was just sort of opportunities to catch up and that kind of just grew from there. So Awesome, awesome. And um, you touched on, because obviously your spouse, your wife is very, very capable as well and as you mentioned, she opened her own gym, um, CrossFit box or, you know, with regards to the term that was being used and stuff there. I'm not sure if it's still used like that today in terms of these CrossFit boxes and those sorts of things. And uh, yourself with regards to which I've got the list here and thank you for um, getting back to me with some of the stuff. So <laughs> this will sort of touch and, and delve into some of that, but I'll, I'll go to the CrossFit stuff first. Obviously you qualified for CrossFit regionals in 2011. This is just some background here. And again, it's not stuff that people like you that I know are going to go around and go, I've done this, I've done that, but it's pretty incredible and it'll help give some context, I believe, for our listeners to go up. Now I understand why we want to do a part two with regards to yourself. So CrossFit Regionals qualify, or CrossFit Regionals participating in 2011, is that right? Yeah, yeah. CrossFit Games Master qualified 2016-17. Those feats in and of themselves, I think, and it made me laugh. And again, this just, to me, shows the humility that comes through on you. When I was listening to your podcast with uh, Aaron Zimmerman, you said, yeah, managed to get through the this CrossFit uh, regionals and then the then the talented athletes came along and then I just sort of got moved off to the side. <laughs> but man, I, I cracked up. Sorry, go. That's honest. Like, yeah. The guys that came through two or three years later were <laughs> so much better than what I was sort of thing. So I, know, I was kind of, I think I was probably mid-30s maybe, sort of a little bit beyond that I can't specifically remember I would have just been yeah. over like 35, 36 um, and then within two years like the the ability of the people that were coming through it was well beyond what I could have done Incredible. in my day sort of thing so um, no. I was just around in the early days 
Uh, so I think you made myself awesome. feel good, and then I got yeah. moved on. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely did awesome. And obviously, the the ultra endurance stuff. Obviously, racing the planet. Um, those four deserts, two hundred and fifty kilometers. Uh, you've done the Kep Ultra, which is a hundred kilometer uh, event. The Yukon Ar- Arctic Ultra, four hundred and thirty miles, seven hundred kilometers. And I'll talk about what my question is when I get to this after yep. the um, Iditarod Trail. Hopefully, I'm saying that right. Invitational. 350 miles so 560 kilometers and from what i understand correct me if i'm wrong you have to do that or show that you can complete that first before you can go on and do the the thousand mile one yep that's right it's a qualifier so like it's probably one of the world's longest qualifiers um but yeah you just have to saying camera is disabled due to slow internet connection um can you see me still yeah i still got you fine yeah okay i can't see you on here but that's fine um Sorry, was I right with that? And I can still hear you too. That um, Iditarod yep. Trail Invitational, 350 mile one, was that the, you have to complete that first before you can go on and do the big one? Yeah, that's right. So it's a qualifying event. Um, so yeah, you have to prove that, because it gets really isolated, like yep. really isolated after that. So you have to prove that you can survive out there on your own under those conditions um, sort of thing, because you know what? Losing someone out there is probably not a great business plan for them, as yeah. I sort of say. So, yeah. yeah, they just want to make sure that you can survive. Wow, unreal. And um, I'll give the dates of these a bit later on or after this. Uh, the Glass Glasshouse Ultra, um, 100 kilometer, another 100 kilometer, and then obviously the big one in 20, just this year, um, the Iditarod Trail Invitational, 1,000 miles, 1,600 kilometers. So from 2011 through to 2022, no signs of slowing down and any of that sort of stuff with the ultra endurance stuff that you do and keeping healthy and well physically and mentally and all that sort of stuff on top of the work that you're doing on top of being you know a husband and a father provider and protector where do you find or how did you find the time to be able to do those particularly um back in 2011 while still serving at what then just skyrocketed to really high well, probably even before then, probably from about 2006, 2007, I guess, the operational tempo of the unit just skyrocketed from what I could see. How did you, how were you able to still go do those events whilst <laughs> while still being in the unit? <laughs> yeah, so I'd always been physically active sort of thing, like yeah. even from a young age and everything. And I think a lot of, because I didn't follow a lot of the training to get into selection, but I think I just developed the base, thankfully, over years of being active that I could just get through the minimum requirement and then I could just grind it out from there. So um, I always kept a pretty decent level of fitness and then when CrossFit sort of turned up and it was around about the same time that sort of Jim Jones became really popular, which yeah. I think was sort of around 2007, 2008, when yeah. we started seeing it. Yeah. Um, it was probably a bit popular before that, but we weren't really internet savvy back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit late on the uptake <laughs> so like it was sort of and guys were just challenging each other with these workouts sort of thing and then we're sort of seeing who could do them and then so I was kind of just playing around with them by chance that you end up sort of getting better and better at it. Well, not by chance but you get better and better at it and then when sort of CrossFit I think when it first started out with Australian regionals it was a little bit of a different format in the first couple of years I didn't worry about it and then I just happened to qualify for the one in 2011, which I think was the actual first organised qualifier. And I went over in a team because I just didn't think as an individual I'd be able to cut it. And I don't think I would have at that level um, to any reasonable ability because my gymnastics was probably 
it's always been average, but it just wasn't going to be able to get me anywhere. Uh, and then on the back of that, I was sort of studying. And then I did a couple of rotations, which seen me away during the um, online qualifying period or through the open. Right. So for the next couple of years, I actually didn't really do the open. Yeah. Um, I think in 2012, I was at Altitude. I think from memory, it was a seven-minute burpee, so about three minutes, I just cut it. Like, I'm done with this. It's <laughs> like, I'm going nowhere. Like, there was no point. It was just suffering for the sake of suffering. Um, so I kind of just played around with it for a few years and then managed to keep a pretty good fitness level. And then yeah. when I hit Masters, and I knew the first couple of years, I had a good chance because I understand the relative age effect. So, you know, at 40, you're competing against 45-year-olds, and that kind of does matter. Yeah. So I thought, all right, the first year I give it a good nudge, and I was in a position where I could. So I went through into the qualifier, and then I think finished somewhere in the top hundred out of that, but yeah, awesome. not good enough to get to the games. So I'm working on the theory that if I can keep fit till sixty, everyone else <laughs> will drop away and get to the games. <laughs> um, sort of thing. But and then you've got all that endurance work that you do at work, sort of thing. So I had a really good volume of endurance and the the ultra endurance stuff just came about by chance that was uh two of us just talking smack one night and we came across the marathon to subs and we kind of challenged each other it's like oh you couldn't do that you know, sort of thing and then um a similar one came to australia so i thought i'm going to give this a run and then from there some of it was stuff i chose other it was just being baited by guys to go and do stuff which is how i found myself in the yukon for the first time oh i hope case man thanks for sharing that and i just you know, it, it reminds me, it's it's a really highly competitive environment being in the regiment and then you've got yeah. within the squadrons and then within the troops and all that sort of stuff. And then squadron versus squadron sort of stuff or mentality and those sorts of things. But were you, I wanted to ask, were you, or did you stay in mobility the whole time or did you go to water or? Uh, so coming back from Afghanistan, I'd always wanted to go water because again, I'd never really spent much time in the ocean and it was yeah. just something that I wasn't comfortable with. And I thought like it's going to be a really bad decision sort of comfort wise yeah. because it's going to be hard work. I'm not going to love it. And <laughs> I don't think I ever really loved it. Um, but I wanted to do the water course. And then when we came back from Afghanistan, they were running one. So I went and did that and then transitioned into the water troops yeah. uh, after that, which is where I spent the rest of my time. Um, I really enjoyed the water troops because yeah. from my perspective, they were really tight troops. So I think, I think a lot of that was around the desurfacing that was required. Yeah. Just all the work outside of inserting and that sort of thing. And, you know, they always tell everyone it's the hardest way to go about doing things. You know, mm -hmm. like maybe it is, maybe it isn't <laughs> sort of thing. But they, they weren't shy on telling everyone <laughs> sort of thing. But you spend a lot, of, a lot of time with each other kind of looking after team gear. So, yeah. you know, it's sort of, it's more about everyone else and less about yourself. And that becomes almost one of your values sort of thing so i just really enjoyed being in that environment because i'm very close you know guys are always there to help you out and that sort of thing so um i thought it was just a, a really good place to spend the next like 15 16 years sort of thing yeah that's awesome and you know to your point like water operators um in my view anyway that was the hardest insertion school in my opinion anyway and back here in nz the reason why i chose that first never got to go on to do it because of the mischief i got up to here but um, was because I'd heard that it was the hardest out of all the insertions. So I wanted to, to do that sort of similar, I guess, mindset in many ways. But to know, and, you know, people might, I know, vehicle mounted and or free fall, 
<laughs> might might not like to admit that, but I I understood that even knowing that and having a small taste of uh, the small boating course and the amount of deservicing and the work and stuff that was involved in that, a very small taste of of what a water operator's role is like. And so I can understand when you're saying about how close and how tight they are. And yeah, it is as much as that might hurt the free fallers and the and the mobility <laughs> troops. Um, yeah, water operators are definitely different. And you're right, they weren't shy in telling the rest of us. <laughs> Yeah, and everyone gave it back, sort of thing. Yeah. I think everyone just looked at waterys as a bunch of arrogant pricks, um, sort of thing, with a bit of humour around it. Yeah, uh, sort yeah. of thing. But they used to talk about, or everyone used to consider the assault swimmers course a second selection because yeah. it was just so yeah. long and the, the hours were huge and it was just so much work involved in it. Mm. Um, and I used to, everyone hates diving. You get to a point <laughs> where it's like, God, I want to get in the water again. And then, you know, you wake up, you've got three swims that day, you know, and three swims all week. Uh, so that yeah like it just it was never fun yeah like great environment but you know the, i used to think that the ocean hated me like every time you go near the water it just makes life really difficult for you because it's just it, it can be a really hard place to work um but i also think it it developed a lot of uh character attributes in me that i think that have served me really well after that it was just that being exposed to it and then just being around some of the the real veteran and experienced water operators, you know, because there's a really long list of guys there who, when you think about it, like they're just really good role models in that yeah. environment. So it was sort of that component as well, I think, really worked a lot to kind of put me on the right path, you know, because I was still fairly young, fairly immature when I got to the unit. Um, but getting those right guys and sort of helping them mentor me and put me on the right path, I think, sort of paid off hugely as I've then went on to do my own things and understand how to develop others sort of thing. So like it's just, whether it was kind of a little bit of luck or whatever it was, it just seemed to work out really well for me. That's awesome, Coops. Oh, you mentioned um, character and traits and then that's actually one of my questions or the next one on here. And I wanted to ask you what has been in, in your time, and we'll come back to some more questions around your time in the unit obviously, but this ties in with it. What's been the most, or what would you say is the most important characteristic or trait to you that an SF operator um, needs to have, or that you you know that you recommend that they have, or somebody that yeah, what is that to you the most important or um, characteristic or trait that you valued most? Yeah, it's really hard to narrow down. Mm. Um, but I guess within that context, yep. I guess having the sort of agility and flexibility to understand what's required within the situation you're in sort of thing. So, you know, there's, and I could try to take away as much as I could from different people that was relevant to different circumstances. So gotcha. early on, I was failing to establish a, a caving ladder on the side of a ship. Right. And the team leader we had was, uh, very much hard line sort of thing. Like he knew how to get the job done. And he was sort of letting me go because I think he was happy to sort of let me struggle with it. And then he got to the point where he just couldn't bear to watch me anymore, sort of flounder <laughs> around on the surface. So he just grabbed it and got it sorted. Uh, and then we sort of finished the task and then, you know, he sort of gave me a debrief. And it was just sort of very much that, you know, in this job, it doesn't matter how you do it. You have to find a way to get the job done. Like there's no quitting there's no sort of cutting back it's just it, it has to happen we have to find a way sort of thing so he sort of imparted some attributes into me that kind of said okay well you know what it doesn't matter how difficult it is it doesn't matter how uncomfortable you are until you 
have no resources left to contribute, you have to keep fighting sort of thing. Like you just have to do everything you can to get the job done. So that was kind of something then you're in situations later on in your career where, you know, you're overseas, it's 50 degrees, you're out of water, like you're in this really long sustained situation and, you know, everything about you or everything in your head saying, you know, what, I just want to sit under that tree for 30 minutes in the shade, but it's like, you know what, I have to keep moving forward sort of thing. So like there's that skill that works within that environment, but then it may not serve you somewhere else sort mm. of thing. So it's, I think it's understanding that flexibility. Then there was other guys who sort of showed me the human side of leadership, you know, about sort of treating people specific to who they are and getting the best out of them, you know, which that works in some environments, but then others, you know, you just have to get them going sort of thing. So for me, I think it was kind of learning that agility and that flexibility around trying to understand what approach you needed to bring to that situation with who you had in it. So it was a lot of understanding the dynamics of interaction, I suppose. So, um, and for me, that's, that's experience. Like you, you get that wrong a lot early on and then you start to learn how to do it based on, you know, seeing the impacts of your decisions, the impacts of how you talk to somebody and that sort of thing. So you sort of kind of do something, observe, you go, okay, well, I don't speak to that person like that again because this is not how our interaction works like he's just not going to respond to that that way then someone else you know might be completely different so for me it was kind of a lot around that awesome man what a great explanation and really great examples that agility and flexibility and being able to apply that to the context or to the individuals yeah th th those are great yeah, points. Really and you make a lot of mistakes doing it like yeah. it's it's a lot of experience like you've really got to understand people you've got to understand situations like the first time you go into it it's like, all right, I'm going to, I have to make decisions. I have to do things. Yeah. You know, so the first time I led, it was like, all right, this is, I've got to suck at this before I understand how to get better at it. So it's like, let's hope no one, there's no really bad consequences of me not being that competent at the moment sort of thing. And then, you know, you just learn from mistakes and you just keep sort of pivoting and adjusting as you need. Awesome. Awesome, mate. I, I wanted to jump back or not jump back, but come back to you and your sweetheart. And obviously, you're deploying on, on operations regularly. Um, and with regards to your spouse and then heading off, did you start having children while you were still serving towards the end of your career or right in the middle, sort of? It was towards the end. Towards the um, end, okay. So our first was born around 2012. So I, was, I still had, I think, one or two trips after that. Yeah. Um, Sort of thing. So I had a trip when she was pregnant and I came back and we sort of had our son. Um, so I was lucky enough that I was around for the birth of my children because I know there's a lot of guys yeah. who weren't. And I, that's a that's a difficult period sort of thing. So I think some of them was by choice at times. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we sort of, I don't know, we kind of delayed it as long as we could because we were both busy and we thought if we bring children in within this, then we just can't give them what they need. Like we just cannot provide what they need. Um, and then you get to that point where it's like, all right, well, we just got to push some of this other stuff aside and now get us into a position where we can have some kids. So ours was very much planned. Gotcha. Um, if we had them earlier, we had them earlier, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't that we were anti-kids or anything. It was just we yeah. were trying to get to a position where it was going to be as best we could get it. And I don't think you ever really reach that position. You get to a point where you're like, you know what, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. You know, let's just get the kids. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I was in the, the period where it was starting to draw down with the amount of sort of deployment time, the amount of training time, those sort of things. So it was kind of worked out pretty well for them. Um, but 
yeah, I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't have waited much longer. I don't think. Gotcha. And with your obviously with the, with the amount of deployments and stuff leading up to each one, how was that time between you and your sweetheart, between you and your spouse, leading up to? Was there a conversation that was had? prior to every deployment was all your stuff in order and all that sort of thing i assume it would be like guys that i've spoken to and that was probably their number one priority before heading off making sure that things were going to be all right at home as well as they could if the worst would happen but how did that go down for you and your spouse with regards to your prep prior to heading away and and all that sort of stuff yes it kind of you deal with all that side of things so you know you get your will squared away you make sure that you know everything's covered so there's there's Issues aren't going to come up that don't need to come up, sort mm. of thing. Um, but it was always difficult. Like, it would be okay, you know, that you're going to go, wife knows that I'm going to go, and you kind of pretend that it's not going to happen for a while. And then you kind of get about three weeks out or two weeks out, and then it, everyone knows it's about to happen. Yeah. And there's kind of, there's almost a little bit of toing and froing around avoiding that conversation, sort of thing. You know, my wife wants me to reassure her that I'm coming home. I'm a realist, so I'm like, well, do you want me to lie or do you want yeah. me to not lie? You know, I mean? like, I don't know if I'm coming home. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think she just wanted a little bit of certainty that, you know, this wasn't going to be the last time she seen me when I left. So that last week I always found really uncomfortable. Um, and I think at times you almost think to yourself, maybe I should give the date three weeks after I've left and then, like, that morning, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm leaving today, not in three weeks. Yeah. Like, you, yeah, that's not really fair. Um, but it was always, it was never comfortable. Like those last week, those last few days, even that last day before you go, like it's just, it's a really difficult time, I think, sort of thing. And I never enjoyed it. I know my wife never enjoyed it. Yeah. You never get better at it. You just kind of accept that that's what it is, um, sort of thing. But, you know, you try and make the most of it in that last week, but neither of you are in the mood to sort of do a huge amount of stuff. You know, you yeah. just sort of, kind of just spend a bit of time with each other and try and make the most of it. Um, and then, you know, off you go and you sort of speak once a week sort of thing. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Like I, I've always felt for the partners at home because mm. even when I'm over there, I know what I'm doing. Like if I'm in base, I know I'm in base. If I'm out, I know I'm out. Yeah. I've got, I know I'm well trained. I know that we've got the upper hand. I know these guys legitimately aren't soldiers. Like most of them are just farmers that, take arms or bear arms against people mm. um you know or they did some fighting against someone else previously yep. you know we're well trained we're professional we're full-time you know like everything's in our favor and i know that where she's at home and she's got no idea what's going on like mm. she goes into bed no idea what i'm doing this sort of thing so you know it's much easier being there than it is being at home i think sort of thing so you know I'd, to be honest i'd prefer to be out there knowing what's going on than back here not knowing yeah gotcha Man. And and thank you for articulating that as well because I think that it really helps paint a picture. I know it does for for many of the spouses and also for the operators in that as well because it it becomes you've got so much happening when you're away and you've got so many other things on and and people that are depending on you, your teammates and that sort of thing. Or in your case, when you're leading um, the team and that as well, uh, that you, sometimes and I've been guilty of just my family is sort of sick like they're they're a distant memory oh you know yeah. thought they're they're not right at the forefront if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely like, there's times where it's, sometimes it's almost like the simplicity of operations is that like 
you know their intent. Like they've made their intent pretty clear. They know yeah. your intent. Like there's no masquerading here sort of thing. And then yeah. you don't have bills coming in. Yeah. You, know, you don't have all this other clutter yeah. that is in everyday life. So like to me, there's a lot going on, but there's almost a simplicity to it where you wake up, you know what you're going to be confronted with during that day. Um, but then, yeah, and you kind of put home aside to a little bit. Like yeah. you just, okay, I'll make my weekly phone call on this day and then, you know, you do that and then you're off back to work for the next week sort of thing. And then as things progress, the phone calls got a little bit more regular. Um, but yeah, back at home, they're dealing with everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and they're dealing with it on their own sort yeah. of thing. So plus all that worry. So yeah, I don't know, like 100%. for me, it's a really difficult relationship to be in sort of thing. And I can understand the pressure that it puts on partners and families and these sort of things. So, you know, like for me, people that are going into it really need to understand the pressure that is put yeah. on them in these situations. And thank you for highlighting that as well, because that's yeah really valuable for for our listeners going through and or those aspiring to go to the unit, following your footsteps and that sort of thing and that as well. And, and for the spouses equally. Um, yeah, you've touched on a heck of a lot of good points here. What I will say is I'm glad you probably didn't pull it out last minute again. Oh, actually, we're going today. You might have ended up boarding the flight with a couple of black eyes from your wife and said. <laughs> oh, <no. Yeah, laughs> no. I, I thought about it sometimes. I thought I can't do that. You know, yeah. I mean? like I, I can't be that person uh, <laughs> sort of thing. But yeah, like I've often said to my wife that, you know, as you sort of, alluded to like getting on and giving her a perspective of it would be really interesting because yeah. I could be completely wrong you know what I mean like you sort of talk a little bit but you never you never truly understand what another person's thinking or what they've been through yeah 100% I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't realise when I listened to my wife share some of her thoughts and perspectives of it those were things that were just not even they went straight over my head I wasn't thinking about that at all and I didn't realise how much of an impact it had and so yeah just the feedback that she's received or that we've received from her sharing that experience and same with um harry's wife um danielle yeah. for sharing hers it's it's powerful and it's incredible and we'd yeah you know it's an open invitation for the spouses but it's slow going at the moment and that's fine um yeah yeah i'll um i'd definitely encourage her like one of the things that stood out for me was early on um we got engaged and i dragged my feet for a while on the engagement um <laughs> but yeah there's a lot on and like yeah. it wasn't so much dragging feet it's just that time goes really quick and then i was away and we had a particularly nasty casualty while we we're away who mm. come home all the partners know about it they don't know who it is at first and yeah. you know you tell them if you're not told early it's okay mm. but they still i still worry you know was yeah. i there am i hurt and no one's telling her these sort of things and i spoke to her a few days later because you know you've got a job to do you can't just rush off to the phone so you sort of come back and then, you know, you just could hear it in her voice, just the concern sort of thing. And then she sort of, you know, she's like, oh, you know, I'm trying to plan. Well, we've got a wedding coming up. You're over there. I don't know if you're going to come home, these sort of things. And you could just sort of feel the, mm. or hear the fear in her voice sort of thing that, you know, I mean, like we're trying to plan this life that she doesn't even know is going to exist in three months sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, you do your 10 minutes on the phone there's a lot of silence in those conversations because, you know, you just don't know what to say, mm. you know, because the reality is I know I'm going back out. I don't know if I'm going to come back from that one sort of thing. So, you know, you try and reassure them and then you sort of, you go and you're sort of down for a couple of hours, but you, you just no idea what she goes away and thinks around about for her next day, for that night, for the following week sort of thing, like how many sleepless nights are on the back of that situation and that phone call sort of thing. Yes. So, um, yeah, like their perspective, I think, carries a lot of power with it. 
hundred percent. And thank you for for speaking to that as well. Yeah, you yeah. sort of you moved into a point here, particularly when you're speaking about the loss and stuff. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, without reliving those, you know, those moments, so to speak, with regards to the loss of whether it's the loss of somebody during operations or during training. How did you? How have you been able to cope with that? For one, and what would be your advice in terms of what helped you be able to cope and move through to, to be able to progress? Because I would assume you still carry that with you every day, um, and that's you know that's extremely difficult, and only you know what that's like. But obviously, you seem to be at least from somebody outside looking in very capable, very competent, very um, growth mindset focused, orientated in terms of being able to move forward. How were you able to, how did you process those sorts of moments when they've happened to you? And what would be your advice to help others who may be still struggling with with those types of things? Losing somebody, whether it's on ops or whether it's been through training accidents. Yeah, so it's always a real tough one. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll start off, by saying I don't know whether I'd comfortably give advice yep, to, cool. because I think everyone's different um, so then like I went about it my way mm. but that may not work for anybody gotcha. you know what I mean it may work for others um, so I think it's one of those things that you know, it's very individually dependent um, sort of thing but I would say awesome. that the, the worst thing you can do is isolate yourself or start to exclude others from that process because you know when we're in pain the last thing we want to be is isolated um, you know but you see some people will do it, whether it's temporary or how long it lasts. Um, but I sort of, where I grew up was sort of um, semi-rural. So there was a number, of, a lot of car accidents out there when I was growing up. So right. I started experiencing burying sort of kids from school, like not really friends at first, but every now and then we get there on an assembly on Monday morning and they'd say, you know, such and such were killed oh, in a right. car accident on the weekend or, you know, playing around on their bikes, these sort of things. So yeah. it wasn't regular. But it was enough that you sort of you start to get a little bit of exposure to it, and then you know I lost a couple friends in car accidents when I was younger. I was involved in a few car accidents, which were all stupidity based. Like not mm -hmm. one of them was not our fault out of stupidity. Um, I wasn't the driver of any of them, so I was sort of not that I wasn't stupid, um, sort of thing. And then I lost a girlfriend, I think, when I was about nineteen or twenty uh, in a car accident through another. She was involved in a different vehicle car accident. I was had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then you sort of get into the military. So I'd kind of been exposed to it a little bit. Um, and I think at an early age, you don't really understand how to sort of reconcile that or how to process that emotion. You just kind of use you know, a bit of toughness to try and get through it. Uh, and my old man was quite a sort of tough, stoic type of person. So I just kind of relied on those skills and then uh, got into the military, get into the regiment and then... I think it was a few years in and then we started getting a, a whole number of deaths sort of thing. So I wasn't there for any of the, the Black Hawk crash or anything like that, mm. but I think there was three guys we lost in a training accident. Uh, then there was a couple overseas periodically. So you kind of just yeah. like exposed to it at these regular intervals. And then after a while, it's sort of, I think you kind of um, almost become, I'm trying to think of the word, where uh, like it doesn't impact you that much sort of thing like it's, you, you come accustomed to it and then you sort of process it a little bit and then like I had some family die sort of probably around 2000 and 
um, oh, 13, 14. Mm. Um, and for me, it sort of got to the point where, for me personally, like I, well, one of the people that died in a training accident was going to be the best man at my wedding sort of thing. So, mm. you know, I had to replace him. And then it sort of, as it went on, you kind of get to a point where, for me, that I looked at it that there's nothing that can be done for them. Like that's, it's happened, you know, I mean, it's tragic. It's happened, you know, you look at to see whether, you know, these things can be avoided, what can you learn from it type of thing. Um, but if I went on and sort of carried on emotionally too much, then that's more around self-pity. So I sort of looked at it as that, you know, what I'll feel for their family. I feel for, you know, some of them had kids that were left behind, these sort of things. So I'll sort of do what I can a little bit around that. But for me personally, I'm not going to go and dwell in my own self-pity sort of thing because it's, it's not serving anyone. You know, I'm not sort of being true to the relationship I had with a lot of these people, which was, you know, we'd sort of push each other all the time. We we're sort of competitive. We're trying to get the best out of each other. So, you know, I've still got to move forward and keep trying to do what I can or be as good as I can sort of thing. And especially if you're in a small team, you know, I mean, everyone still relies on each other. You've still got a job to do. Um, so I sort of looked at it like that, that it's sort of, you know, there's an emotional component to it where you process, you know, time you spent with them how good that was you know you sort of think about what could have been what you're going to miss and these sort of things but personally for me there was there was no point in having too much self-pity prolonging that sort of thing and then I think you almost emotionally detach a little bit once you've sort of been exposed to it for so long is that mm -hmm. you kind of it almost becomes a little bit too rational so you lose some of that emotional side of it sort of thing so like for me, it's something now that I've reconciled with. I've reconciled pretty much with my own mortality. And to be honest, I've reconciled my children's mortality that there's just things outside of my control. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean I expose them to crazy shit. <laughs> um, but you sort of understand that for them to go and live a really good life and explore, then I have to be comfortable with the fact that they could get hurt. Yeah. Sort of thing. Like it's very low probability, but I've kind of reconciled that to a degree. So I guess... The way I've gone about it is probably specific to the circumstances and the context I was in, which, like I sort of said, it may not work for other people yeah, sort of thing. But I'm at a point now where I'm kind of... I'm not dragging any negative emotion with me sort of thing. So it's kind of... You know what? I chose a really difficult job that had consequences. Yep. A lot of the people in that chose the same job. You know what I mean? Most of us got through it. Some of us sort of didn't. You know what I mean? But everyone understood what we are getting into. 100% man beautiful bro I love listening to the way that you articulated that and speaking about what worked for you and um, I took a lot away from that I, I loved just listening to you speak and came across very um, selfless and looking outward is what I took away out of the couple of notes that I just took down from with regards to the experiences and the exposure that you had from a young age moving through and then getting into that uh, getting into the regiment and then being exposed to that more and what I what I was hearing was somebody that was, yep, you, you feel for, there's nothing else that can be done for that person, but you feel for those that are left behind and to a degree probably for yourself in that as well, but getting over and getting past that self-pity as you explained and then looking outwardly, there's other people that still need you uh, there with your team and there's still a job to do and that sort of stuff and very selfless, very outward looking. So thanks for sharing that, bro. It's um, yeah, certainly no, not no easy. Problem. Yeah, and to be honest, like, there was times early on where you know, you'd spend a a day or two in a bottle sort of looking for the answer and you realise you know what this is not getting me anywhere mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and then once I had kids and I just didn't have time to, you know, separate myself from a family because the kids were little, they still needed me to do everything for them sort of thing. So I was like, you know what, I have to just accept that this has happened, you know, and don't let pity or my pity interfere with those. So I said, okay, well, I need to deal with this. I need to process it. But then I need to be able to get on because I've got jobs and people that depend on me. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Coops. I wanted to ask you here, what, what have been some of the key lessons that you've learned about yourself while serving in the regiment for, for such a long period of time? And using that time, obviously, because it's been so long, almost two decades within the regiment itself of service, <clears throat> What have been some of the key lessons that you learned about yourself and or perhaps maybe your your views or opinions on things? Um, oh, I know there'd be plenty, but yeah, just what are, what are maybe, I don't know, a, yeah, no, a no, handful no, of right. standards. Um, yeah, I learned that I hate the water. I know that much. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I heard that. <laughs> I still don't like going to the beach. So anyway, I'll take my kids and they're like, you're coming in? I'm like, nope. <laughs> Um, yeah, but then again, I'll, time, I'll get over my problems and go and play with them, um, <laughs> sort of thing. But yeah, I guess early on, I kind of learned that. Well, the big thing I learned was I should have had more courage when I was younger. You know, what I mean, over yeah, a number right. of different aspects. Like that's something that I learnt and grew. And that sort of courage, you know, to to speak out. You know, what I mean, like in the military is an environment where when you're junior. Like you just don't feel like it's your place to say something, regardless whether you think it's wrong or right. Like you just, yeah. you sit there, keep you, uh, keep quiet, because sometimes there is repercussions to saying things. Yeah. Um, so you know, as you get older, you sort of develop the courage. You like, you know what? That's wrong. I'm going to say it's wrong. And then you know, sometimes it, you have a good discussion. Other times you just get shut down and kind of put in your place a little bit that you know that the discussion should have taken place. So. I sort of learnt that that was a skill I had to develop along the way yeah. and then kind of understanding, you know, how to deliver that message without sort of being abrasive straight up. Um, so I think like I learnt a lot around how to develop people and mentor them. So early on, it was sort of very much just a, a hard approach to everything. Yeah. You, know, we, uh, you know, this is how it's going to be, this is how we've got to do it sort of thing. Then as you sort of get on, and I think it was a fair change or transition in the type of people that were starting to come through as well. You know, like I got on the back end of people that had been in an environment where in the battalions a few years before I got there, people would get bashed just for being new sort of thing. So yeah. they'd turn up, you know, they'd sort of get harassed and they'd be like, okay, this is for the things you're going to do wrong. And that kind of changed, thankfully. And then we're starting to get through people that have just been brought up differently. So, you know, that's like, this is not how the world works. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, they just don't respond to sort of negative feedback and these sort of things. So you start saying, okay, well, you know what? Do they need negative feedback, to be honest? So, you know, you got to change or learn to change the way I did things that sort of made sure that the message I needed them to understand was what they took away from it sort of gotcha. thing. So I learned a lot around, you know, the way I respond to pressure, the way I sort of... I sort of regulate my own emotion and these sort of things and, and how that has to be a priority, especially if I'm in a position where I'm trying to guide other people is because if I can't regulate my response, then I'm never going to be able to get anything out of them. So I had to learn a lot around that um, sort of thing. And then 
kind of, I guess you, you learn a lot about where your head goes when you're in really uncomfortable places or when you're in a lot of physical pain or things are difficult. And then over the years, you sort of learn to just put some of that aside as that's just thoughts. I need to keep going. Um, sort of thing. And then I guess going to uni as well, I kind of had to almost start a second new life to a degree a little bit. So there was all this academic stuff I had to go and learn. So I think that kind of evolved me a lot around, you know, a lot of those skills that weren't within the military. Um, yep. So I sort of got a lot of good exposure from there. But yeah, no, I think pretty much my whole career has just been a continual growth. Yep. You know, you sort of start going down a path, you realise that that's not quite right, so you pivot a little bit, but just kind of going through and just trying not to stuff too much shit up. Sort of <laughs> Early on, I used to get a lot of things wrong. Um, yeah. But you know what? That Everyone does. You know, That's not me. That's just what I'm capable of in that moment or in that situation or at that time. So just go away, work on the things I need to work on and you know, keep improving. Awesome, man. Man, what really good points. And I know that each one of those in and of themselves would open themselves up to a whole um, topic uh, by itself for you to speak about, you know, how to develop people, that courage to develop or you wish you'd had it developed a bit more courage when you were younger or your mind was sort of open to that. Personal responses and emotional regulation, those sorts of things. Um, I love how you spoke about being able to pivot and recognize those things and learning from those mistakes. And just one of the key parts that I heard you mention as well is just this continual trajectory of growth which you're on and, and obviously I think you're still on that as well as you do the things that you're doing with the company that you direct and the people that you interact with and the skills and stuff that you're passing on so thanks yeah. for tips for, for speaking about that Coops. yeah I heard a thing I came across something that spoke about two mountains and I don't remember the full context of it because uh, right. I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm cycling and I'll, so I'll sort of cycle to the gym to work out cycle home because for me it's just an easy way to get in yeah. extra sort of non-exercise activity and I just mm -hmm. enjoy cycling you know you're out um and i was listening to a podcast and they were talking about two mountains and the first one was kind of like building his performance and then the second was into coaching or something like that and i kind of for me i put it into a context of of almost climbing three mountains so one was getting really proficient as an operator sort of thing and then you get to the top of that mountain and then i was like all right now i'm going to go and learn as much as i can about developing people sort of and I look at it as development around human factors. So yeah. everything is associated with building a person. So I started off in sports science and then I've gone into this huge spider web of different avenues. Some of them are well out of my depth, but I just love exploring it. And then the third mountain will be how do I impart all this knowledge mm. from what I've learned and my experience to then try and help develop people sort of thing. Because that's one thing to know it, but it's another thing to be able to package it in a way that people understand and then they can go and use it sort of thing so i've kind yeah. of looked okay well i'm kind of still climbing the second but i can see the third mountain and how this leads into it sort of thing so that's how i kind of look at it now that's awesome you know, that, that that first mountain's behind me that's gone there's no point looking back trying to yep. relive how great that was you know i yeah. love that experience but now I've, there's better things in front of me yeah awesome that's that's such a good point and so yeah, I like how you've been able to just articulate what you can see now going ahead and using those mountains. That one's behind you. You're still climbing the second one, but you can see where that third one leads and how you are able to impart that in a way that people will understand and connect to it. So that's, man, that's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Bro. I, yeah, when I heard the two mountains thing, I, to me that really, I connected to that. I was like, okay, well, I can see yeah. how my life's been put together almost like that. 
because you have days where you wonder, you know, what am I doing? Like, yeah. am I out of my depth here? And then I sort of looked at, okay, well, you know what? It's a long way to climb up this mountain, which is fine. I'm comfortable with that sort of thing. But if I keep going, eventually I'm going to get there. Yeah, brilliant. Awesome. And I, I like that there's, um, there's a piece I heard one time, oh, it might have been uh, Steve Jobs when he was still alive and talking about connecting the dots. And he spoke about you can only connect the dots backwards to see then you know what that what it potentially leads to going forward. That was what I sort of took away from it. But um, yeah, yep. listening listening to you speak about that, I was like, man, yeah, that's that's a really good point. When, as I connect the dots back to what I've been lucky enough to do and where I am now, I understand where I'm at now, and I can also sort of I have a better understanding or vision of what it is that I want or need feel like I need to know. And it sounds like the stuff that you've just described and articulated as well, man. That's awesome to hear. I um I wanted to ask you about so coming back to the the unit itself. What have you noticed? What have been some of the things that you noticed about? You sort of touched on it briefly um, about Aspire when you mentioned about some of the candidates coming through and stuff on selection. But what have you noticed over the years of aspiring candidates wanting to come and join the unit SASR? Um, and the difference in particular between those that that have passed or those that passed and that those that fail is there anything that sort of stands out to you because we get well i get asked this a fair bit and i know other guys do like yourself with your experience go what is it is this is there anything that sort of has stuck out to you over the years the difference between those that pull out quit for whatever reason and those that pass for me it seems fairly black and white when i when i try to answer that question for people and i'm most of the guys like you it, it seems pretty black and white as well but i i just want to ask because i want to make sure i'm not the only one for one but also to to learn and hear from your perspective as well yeah so to me ultimately it's motivation and just you know whether you're willing to put yourself through that pain or not so yeah. like i look at it through a number of different sort of lenses. Um, so I studied the physical side of it for the first few years. I was sort of in the human performance program there. Um, right. And physically, the only thing that had any real difference or any significant difference was body size or body mass. So, you know, people that were around 90 kilos were more likely to pass than people that are around 80 kilos. But it wasn't, wasn't huge. Like you yeah. certainly wouldn't say, you know, if you're 75 kilos, you're not going to get there because there's guys there who are below 70 yeah. kilos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but when you look at it in relation to the relative amount of weight they're carrying, they're just working gotcha. a lot harder than the guys who are 100 kilos or 110 yeah. kilos or 120 because you know, a 40 kilo pack at 120 isn't yeah. that much compared to somebody who's 65 kilos and has got yeah. a 40 kilo pack on. So they're going to work a lot harder. They're going to break down a lot faster. It's going to be a lot tougher. So mentally, they're going to be a lot stronger than the bigger guys. Um, but other than that, physical ability never really showed much. So like big guys don't run so fast on the 3.2, but they carry load really well. You know, some of the guys who are smaller with big VA2, they run really fast. They're not quite as good with load carriage sort of thing. But you need that broad range of people. Um, then when I sort of talk to the people around the psychological side of it, it's more markers around kind of just their mental strength to get through it. So ultimately it comes down to whether you're willing to pay the price. So whatever your motivation is and everyone has a different reason for applying, if the strength of that motivation is stronger than the pain of selection, then you're going to get through it. If the pain of selection goes above the strength of that motivation, then you're likely to waver. Um, I will say... One of the things that does appear to be a factor in why people withdraw is really big changes in relationship 
just before selection. So people that have children, people that have a really significant change in their relationship, when mm. they get into that phase where they're on their own, that seems to play on their mind and then they seem to withdraw. So that gotcha. seems to be a factor. But again, it's not exclusive. You know yeah. what I mean? Like people still get through with young kids that have just been born, those sort of things. It just seems to be play a bit more of a role. Um, but everything I've looked at, none of it has enough power to look at somebody and go, no, you're not going to make it. You know what I mean? Yep. Based on their performance sort of thing. So you know, you'll see guys who turn up who are pure physical specimens and they're gone on day two. And then you see guys who yeah. turn up and you look at them and you're like, mate, did you get on the wrong bus? And the guy is powering yeah, yeah. on day 17, day 18. So um, I never used to try and pick. Like I've seen a few. Yeah. Some of the older guys that have been around for a long time seem to be reasonable at it. I think some of them yeah. overrated their percentages. I think some of them were pretty reasonable. Um, Exaggerated. Yeah, I, yeah. I never got into it. I was like, no, nah, I'm not. Because they'd be like, I, you know, pick who you think I was like I'm not getting involved because I've got no no idea if he's going to get through this um, yeah. sort of thing so uh, it's one of the reasons I started looking at the cognitive space around trying to work out you know not so much discriminate against who could get through as like a pass fail thing or as a test but I was just really curious about it uh, one of the things that I did look at which did seem to show a little bit of potential in a selection tool was their threat response under some of the sort of scenarios that we're doing. So the people that responded better with better regulation during and specifically post the event seemed to have a much higher chance of getting through than the people that didn't sort of thing. So your ability to sort of, everyone's going to increase when a threat turns up, everyone's going to go through the threat response. And then it's being able to maintain that a level that you still got rational control or logical reasoning. And then it's deregulating on the other side of it seems really important um, sort of thing. So that in itself seems to be a bit of a skill, a bit of experience, a bit genetic. So That's um, awesome. But again, Sorry. it's difficult to test for. Um, yeah. And I only did a few pilot tests with it, but it's kind of, it's not something that you just go out and do to people regularly sort of thing. Like it's just a bit resource intensive, take some equipment and then... I did it a second time and I think people were assuming that I was doing something else and they were sort of playing around with the gear so I got too much artifact in the data collection to tell. I think they were trying to yeah, make right. sure that I, I couldn't get decent data. <laughs> and how long how long has the human performance part of the unit been there, like been as established as what it is now within the regiment? Uh, so it was around... 2009, 2010, I think. So I started Damn. uni 2010, I think it was from memory. Moff had already started doing his psych. Yeah. I think it was around 2010, there was like a, a futures cell looking at non-traditional ways that we could improve what we're doing. And they were looking yep. at some of the stuff that was going on in the US because they were starting to just get guys in from sports. So they just put together contracts, went and got guys who they thought were the best. And it's like, all right, here's a bucket of money. Make us really good. Uh, yeah. we didn't have anything so like, all right, here's some here sausages and some bread <laughs> yeah, yeah. come and make us really good yeah. who's got some time and is interested and me and Moff were sort of doing it so we sort of all came together and that's when the, the initiative started and then from there it sort of grew we're just trying to work out where to take this what it looks like and I think it's Man. still it's still kind of trying to find its direction and its path right awesome thanks for, for speaking about that that's awesome good to know um what was it like for you? Uh, what's it been like knowing that um, the last of the hard selections ended after yours, bro? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think yours was the last of, of the hard. Yours was the uh, last of the hard selections. I think there's been some tough. I've seen some tougher ones than mine. I can tell you now. <laughs> um, we didn't do. Like, there's been some really big activities that have like been 24 hours long, and they weren't on mine. And I've watched just watching. It's hard. And I was like, thankfully. Um, but yeah, everyone does enjoy that one. Uh, yeah. I don't know, like it's hard. And it's one of those things, I think it ebbs and flows. Like I think they creep for a little bit and then there's yeah. a reset and then they kind of creep for a little bit. Mine was the first back in Perth. So I'm going to say that was the reset. And then from there it crept a little bit potentially. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. Maybe they felt sorry yeah. that there was only six of us and they let us have a baby for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, humble and diplomatic of you. I'm not going to say it's too hard because there's people that will ring me up and let me know. About it. <laughs> hey, I um, on here. Can you talk us through? I, I always love hearing when, when guys like you and from other similar units and stuff get to this stage. What was that moment like for you? And and was your spouse? Um, there with you the day of the badge inst- oh no no she wouldn't have been because you met you nah. had already been in the end yeah. for two three years okay so who was there at your badging ceremony when you received your beret and what did that feel like how, how did you um, feel yeah for me I don't think anyone was there for memory um, <laughs> right sort of thing. Like, I just don't think they made it across I don't even think I made a big deal out of it two of them um, right sort of thing but like in a way I felt relief sort of thing it's yeah. like because, you know, it's like you get told on some of those calls, you get told every day you're not here yeah. yet. You know what I mean? Like you could go home tomorrow and that lives with you the whole cycle. It's like, I'm not here yet. And the minute you stop thinking about it, somebody reminds you about it. Sort of thing. So, <laughs> you know, you're constantly on wood, like you're constantly under this pressure to perform. Um, you know, every time you don't do something at the standard, you're told about it straight away. You know, you'll go and do extra scenarios or extra training sometimes because someone's decided that you just need it. Um, so I think so when you get there, like it's a it's a bit of a mix of that you know, accomplishment that you've been able to get through selection. You've got through the training. You know, you've showed that you have potential within that environment. And then a little bit of relief is like, well, you know what? I am here now. <laughs> you yeah. know, here I am sort of thing. So <laughs> I don't know. Like it was a good feeling Yeah. sort of thing. But then... There's a little bit of apprehension as well because now you're into the squadron where, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, well, I don't know what tomorrow looks like for me because some of the safety net that comes from instruction and doing what you're told is gone. And now there's an expectation that, all right, there's that's the job you need to go, do, go and have at it. And it's like, uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, you know, like, who's here to help me with this? <laughs> yeah, there's that expectation that you just solve your own problems. Um, mm. So it's sort of a bit of a mixed bag for me. Awesome. No, that's cool. I'm very grateful to, for you to share that. And um, nice to hear the, those thoughts, that relief. But yeah, I would imagine a, a great sense of, of not only relief, but happiness too. It's a huge accomplishment, um, yeah. in my view anyway, to go through all of that and come out the other side. So Yeah, but you're right. You, you bring back memories now. You, you're heading off to the squad and you don't know what day <laughs> one's going to look like. <laughs> that's awesome. Um I wanted to get on to, I've only got a handful of questions for you left for this yep. for this part here. And um, you've done such an awesome job at articulating and speaking to many of the other points that you've covered off on some of the other aspects and questions that I had here. But I wanted to ask as well, um, when you, so when you looked to leave the unit and discharge um, from there, were you, did you already know 
you had obviously you had started studying but was that <clears throat> were you certain did you have something lined up did you have a job or something lined up um when you started looking at transitioning out of out of the unit yeah so it sort of it was at a point where i was ready or i felt kind of ready um sort of thing so in saying that we were in the process of building a new house in perth so we yeah, bought right. some land we we're building a new house so you know we were establishing a foothold in there um and then i was just exploring opportunities sort of thing because i was keen on sport or interested in sport because yeah. it's just another one of those things that seems really exciting you don't know much about it it's behind its own closed door you're like oh yeah. you know, i want to go and have a look at that yeah. um <laughs> and then an opportunity just came up so i actually took uh, all my leave and my long service at half pay because i had a fair bit of leave just because we've been so busy um, gotcha. and work was kind of coming out of that really busy operational period yeah and then it, it was going through its own kind of difficult transition so um like it's i probably left at a, a pretty reasonable time because sort of it's, um it's had its own issues post that so the opportunity came up took all my leave and everything moved across to brisbane uh and because i came to sport they sort of helped with the move so it, awesome. it wasn't really costing anything it was kind of like a risk-free two-year look almost sort of thing where we can go have a look financially everything's going to be the same it's not going to cost us anything we've still got the house in perth i can still go back to the, the um regiment if i don't like it yeah uh, and then we came over and sort of i was enjoying my time in sport and then another opportunity came up for tracy and we sort of had a discussion all right well what do we do do we stay here with this okay it's going to create a little bit more complexity around some things or we can go back to perth where things are comfortable and safe and then mm. ultimately we decided to stay here sort of thing and then like everyone a transition is its own kind of piece i think if you've got something to go into that challenges you that gives you sort of a bit of value in what you're doing that you know keeps you occupied and these sort of things and it's not too bad so when i went into the reds that transition was quite easy because that was quite um a competitive environment it was very similar uh it was something where i was comfortable going into and then going from that into a phd that's completely foreign so that's been a completely different transition or process sort of thing with some of its yeah. own sort of challenges trying to learn some of the stuff around you know, analyzing data and all this other stuff that i've no idea what i'm doing um, <laughs> so i think it kind of depends a little bit on the person and what they're going into sort of thing yeah. so we sort of in the process where we knew once we separated we'll sort of there's going to be a difficult period for a while we just work through that and then we'd sort of be better off on the other side of it sort of thing so you know coming out of the phd then we can start to organize a few other things um but i think it was just the point in time where i was ready to leave there were other things going on and it was just kind of cutting that umbilical cord sort of yeah. thing you know because you can be get really comfortable feel really safe in that environment because it has good job security you know the the routine at that time was pretty standard it was just sort of very low risk because there wasn't a lot going on um, and I think some people kind of just get caught in that and then you know they go a little bit stale because it's the same thing you know and these at one point in their lives everyone in there was really driven sort yeah. of thing so um, yeah I don't know like I talked to a few people around the transition some people do it really well some people struggle with it a little bit yeah. um, it's just one of those things that I think that at some point you're going to have to go through it like it's it's not isolated to the military if you've got 
20, 30 year career police officers or people yeah. in sports or somebody in any business that's been there for that long. Like it's just moving out of what is almost certainty around your daily routine into uncertainty is going to be difficult um, sort of thing. But yeah, I think people that leave before they're ready or they're sort of forced out due to injuries or these sort of things. And that's, that's a completely different story. So thankfully I left by my own volition had some stuff to go to and everything I've done has been my choice. So whether it's turned out good or bad, it's my choice. And I sort of comfortable with the fact that some of my choices don't work out so well. I've just got to find a way to make those work. Awesome, man. Far out. Beautiful and great to hear. And I, I, I wanted to ask you, so when you went to the Queensland Reds, you're talking about the rugby union team, right? Yep. Was, uh, who was the coach at that time? Was it Brad uh, Thorne? It was just or? after Brad Thorne came on, yeah. Ah, right. Awesome. Yep. And what was your, how was that what was that dynamic like for you with regards to your you've come from where you've come from this environment um fairly secretive closed door high performing high functioning to this other type of high performing high functioning environment what was that initial sort of um moment like for you once you were in there and getting starting to come to terms with meeting people and all that sort of stuff that were there what was that like yeah it was um fairly easy to be honest sort of thing like it was almost getting put into another troop you nice. know because I mean? like, they're they're people and a lot of them um really focus on performance they focused on outcomes you know i mean like when when you're in the military we talk about a no-fail mission sort of thing and then they're very outcome driven you know what i mean like you get your mission you go and you try and do that like sort of thing so they're very similar because it's all about wins uh, at that stage we weren't winning a lot so things become there's a little bit of pressure kicking around around that but yeah. it was quite easy because there was a lot of similarities within the environment there and the environment I've been in sort of thing so I was just going around trying to get to know those guys build those relationships sort of work out you know where I can have my best impact how do I perform in this environment you know what do I bring and sort of how do I get the best out of myself and out of them sort of thing without trying to impose anything on them so I sort of yeah. just spent the first couple of months trying to work out what my involvement looked like within that environment and then just sort of making sure that you know I could turn up and give the best I could every day sort of thing awesome man that's brilliant and I just wanted to wrap up with a couple of things and have you touch on uh one more point after as well as I didn't ask you yet so during your your career within the unit how many um deployments did you hit off on did you end up going away on um coops? I so I sort of looked at two different types. So there was yep. the four to six month operational deployments, yep. which was sort of mainly combat focused. So yep. I think it was around six or seven of those. Yeah. And then yep. around about six of the shorter sort of two weeks to month long where they're kind of more security staff yep. uh, and a couple others that I sort of won't go into any detail, but they're yep. like a specific uh, activity that you're going out for. So I think there's around about a dozen all up or a cumulative, I think close to four years um, yeah, yeah. sort of thing. So, you know, because a lot of those combat ones we do, they're pretty short because just the intensity of those operations and the frequency, mm. you know, like, like, and I think it still burnt a lot of dudes out. Yeah. Just with that, the tempo that we had for that sort of period between sort of 2007, 2012. Yep. And would you, is there anything, if you could, is there anything that you would change about your time? Doesn't sound like there is, but is there anything if you is there anything that you would change about your time either in the unit or leading up to? I don't like I look at those two different ways. So yeah. 
one way I look at it is I wouldn't change anything because the good, the bad, the things I did, the things I didn't do, all crafted where I am right now. Yeah. Sort of thing. So if I change, like the sort of butterfly or ripple effect, you know what I mean? Like if you yeah. change one thing, then it puts you on an alternate path. Um, but then I look back and go, you know what? Maybe I change everything. Maybe I'd just take this on so just complete or explore a completely different pathway um, yeah. out of that sort of curiosity fascination side but the ultimately this is where i am yeah. what happened got me here so i'm kind of i'm happy with where i am sort of thing like i don't have any big regrets um you know and people say you know what would you go and tell yourself when you're younger the thing i'd probably tell myself is just have a little bit more courage be a bit more courageous around everything really you know what i mean like there's things that i could have explored that i didn't things i could have done that i didn't so just be you know what don't hesitate so much. Don't be worried so much. Just take shit on. That's awesome to hear you say that because do you find yourself even now going through and having experienced everything that you've experienced and doing what you're doing now, which I'd like you to speak about shortly, do you find that from time to time you still speak to yourself and say, just, just get on with it or have the courage or oh. is it sort of automatic now? It depends on the circumstances, to be honest, I think. So... Yeah. One of the things, and we'll probably touch on this more later on, that I specifically yeah. did on the last adventure race I did was I became very deliberate in the mindset I went on to it with or the intention that I went on there with. And when things got really difficult, I just had a key phrase for me about yeah. how I wanted to do that race that I just used that and that reminded me to stop worrying about trivial shit or that I'm tired or that it's dark or you know I've been walking for 18 hours or whatever it was and just keep moving sort of thing. So... I still, in that context, yeah, I'll, I'll still have to deliberately reframe my thoughts from time to time gotcha. to stop worrying about negativity or weakness or whatever it is. Um, in the academic world, everything there is new to me. So, you know, I'll be putting together, like I got an a article published recently at the beginning of the year, and when I'm writing that article, I'm looking at it, and there are thoughts in my head that are like, you know what? these guys are going to catch you out for being the idiot that you are. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you go through that imposter syndrome type of thing where yeah. you're like, you know what? I'm way out of my depth here. And at some point I'm going to come up for air and everyone's going to see it. But then you sort of, <laughs> you look at it and go, you know what? Everyone's trying to hold their breath and hang on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of just getting past that and thinking, yeah, you know what? If I send it off and it comes back, I'll just adjust the points that are on there and then I'll send it off. Like the first, draft is always going to be rubbish yeah. um so now like everything i send off i know it'll go um, go back and forth four or five times and it's going to come back every time with a heap of pen on it with a heap of adjustments <laughs> sort of thing so it's like you know what each time it goes away i'll just refine my writing a little bit better sort of thing so you know what i produce now for a first draft is way better than what i produced for a first draft when i was doing my bachelor's or the undergrad um so yeah ultimately you still go through that and even parenting you go through that all the time you're like do i know what i'm doing here and my actions are actually have an impact on another human being now so mm. you know they try not to stuff this up too bad sort yeah. of thing so yeah i think everyone does but it's just trying to get hold of those thoughts as quick as you, you can and then sort of understand you know what what do i is there anything i need to be worried about here and if it is what do i need to do to fix it or is this just me starting up one of those thought circles that's going nowhere and it's just occupying time that I could be doing with something more positive or more productive? Man. But yeah, awesome. I think 
I think I'll have those thoughts forever. Like I look back now yeah. and I remember when I was younger, you look at somebody who was in their mid forties and you think, you know what, that guy's so mature and so old. And now I'm there, I'm like, <laughs> man, I'm still a child. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm 80, I'll still be a child in my head. So, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> Hundred percent, yeah. So mature, so old. Yeah, my kids have a habit of telling me how old I am, reminding me how old I am. But uh, man, so good to hear you speak about that and and to share that advice and your perspective as well. I really took away from just listening to you speak about that. And I was wondering, just as a way to sort of look towards wrapping this one up, would you mind just speaking about some of the stuff that you do, just at a high level type thing, because that will be the segue, I guess, into me wrapping up this conversation with you in terms of what you do now um the business like the name of your business and how to pronounce that properly so i've deliberately not tried to say the name of the company that you're the director of because i want to wait till you say it correctly because i prefer to say things right um and yeah and maybe a bit about what the intent is so sort of your company what you do and um what the intent is going forward with with regards to what you're doing because that's the stuff i'd love to come back and speak with you about which will lead into obviously talking about a bit more about the transition, the ultra endurance stuff that you're doing, find out how many more of those are you going to be looking to do? Are you, have you got some more on the pipeline and that sort of stuff that you're looking at doing and raising funds like you did for the latest one and that sort of thing? So uh, would you mind just giving us yeah. an overview of that? Yeah, definitely. So priority um, outside of family at the moment. So like professionally sort of thing yeah. is just finishing off the PhD. So I'm probably two thirds of the way through that. Um, I may have to extend just because of the travel restrictions had an impact on what I was able to do, what I couldn't do. So I'm kind of trying to fight that timeline. Um, gotcha. So I'm trying to get that done. Sort of slowly growing the business side of things uh, with the company that you sort of mentioned, which is Comanche Group. So I'm just kind of gotcha. slowly getting that out there. Uh, as I sort of get more free time around my PhD, then I'll start to put invest more time into that sort of thing. So that's just doing a little bit of work here and there as it comes up. Um, and that's a lot around the point I'll use to disseminate all the information I've learned, all the stuff I've got from experience. So everything that I've kind of spoken about or that third mountain that I've sort of alluded to, that's kind of yeah. what I'll use for that. So that um, I put out a fair bit of free content just to get people thinking. You know what I mean? Like you put out a video or something like that or you, you write something and people read it and they think, you know what, I'm saying that from a place of certainty where, you know, it's just like, this. it's more of like a, this is kind of what things allude to or what we understand at the moment around things, but it's more to generate thought sort of thing, not to say, you know, this is how it is, everybody yeah. take note. Um, so I'll grow that a little bit, sort of looking at different areas where I can sort of add value uh, around people that are performing under pressure. So I'm doing a little bit of work within the tactical environments, looking at sort of sport and a few other these things, particularly um, sports or pursuits where it's very cognitive heavy. Because uh, a lot of stuff I look at is around peak cognition. So anything that's got a lot of decision-making has pressure, these sort of things, which is basically everything. It's just in a different context. Um, family's a big one. Like that will never take, or nothing will ever take priority over family. So when I look at it, there's no work-life balance sort of thing. It's just mm. competing priorities and nothing will compete with the priority of family as best I can. Like occasionally you will sacrifice some time of family for something that you feel is important or compromise yep. time of family, but 
when I weigh it all up, family will always have priority sort of thing. So I'll go to the kids' sports carnival over, you know, go and have a coffee with somebody that may be a future client or something. You know, like, mm. all right, I've got this on and I will, you know, your time will come shortly afterwards sort of thing. So that's one of the things that I'll never compromise is that family. And then in the pursuits, um, midway or just towards the end of the idea ride, I thought I was done. I was kind of happy that I was done. I'd achieved that. Probably about four to five weeks later, the thought of the seed of hitting the South Pole sort of <laughs> slowly started growing. So I'm kind of joking around a solo expedition to the you South Pole. You could never do that, mate. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't have to, you don't have to grow that it's thought anymore. Um, yeah, I've sort of, that, that's always been a big thing for me is doing yeah. the South Pole. So um, randomly it's shorter than the distance I did on the Iditarod. Just the conditions are a lot tougher. Um, yeah, right. So I think so. I don't know. That's a that's a big trip. Like that's a big task. So that's kind of something that I'm looking at. And you know, I sort of say never say never. We'll see yeah. what happens. But then I've sort of spoken to the kids. When they're older, I'd love to take them on some of these big adventure races, sort of thing, like yeah, going yeah. through the Yukon, probably on a bike more so than foot next time, yeah. or Alaska with one or both of the boys. I think would be a great experience. So. Um, or even you know any of these any number of other sort of events races trekking anything like that so you know as they get up or as they get older sorry it'll be a lot around you know let's go and explore the world you know yeah. and just sort of spend time with each other out in that at outdoors and just have some really good experiences beautiful mate man that's so awesome and there's just a stir up too i know you could absolutely smash it if you wanted to do it so that was just uh taking into consideration some of your comments earlier with guys uh winding you up and yeah and having that's a go how it yeah but mate i've i've really loved this time with you coops and um hearing you speak about some of your experiences i know it's sort of been one eye focused from my side um with regards to the context predominantly of this conversation with you but you've just summed up really nicely about the stuff that you're doing now i love how you talk about your family and that the fact that nothing will ever come first before that and you, there may be some times where you compromise bits and pieces but just that simplicity of that example of you'll attend the child's yeah, or one of your yeah. children's games first yeah just i know you're that. big on family as well so i know you completely understand um you know like one of the things or passions i have is kind of around how to or how do we make young boys into better men sort of thing because I think there's a real gap there so the first part is me playing my role to make sure that my two boys grow up into really well behaving socially adjusted just really good human beings sort of thing they're not out stealing cars for TikTok they're not out doing drugs they're not out doing all those other things and I know there's a lot of factors that go into these things but I'll do everything I can to make sure that I'm not one of those factors awesome mate yeah, beautiful. And so um, I look forward to connecting with, with you again to delve more into some of the stuff with Comanche Group and things that you're doing there from the professional side as well, as well as um, hearing a whole bunch more about the prep for the uh, South Pole because um, <laughs> I'm sure that's going to be carrying on. Right. And, what, and what, your, what your wife, what your sweetheart thinks about that too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She's already not amused. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But mate, and and just on that as well, I'd love it would be a huge privilege and honour if your spouse, if your wife would consider 
been on the podcast it's been a long time since i've seen her as well back in the day in perth at her gym and all that sort of thing but uh it's been an absolute privilege to have you on mate and i look forward to connecting with you again to share more of some of the experiences that you have and discuss more about the second mountain that you're climbing and also by then well hopefully not too far away but there'll be i would assume somebody like you will have more of a clearer vision and idea about some of your intent about passing that knowledge on for that third mountain so Bro, much love to you and your family. Great to see you again and um, wishing you all the very best with everything that's happening, mate. And I'll send through some details so that we can uh, so that we can connect again. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me on, man. I've really enjoyed chatting. So I think so. Like I said, I'll try and be as open and honest as I can and just try and, you know, give as much as I can to try and help out the audience. So, um, yeah, it's been really good and great catching up again. Yeah.